0: Oh, don't you love the weeping and gnashing of teeth parables? They're the best ones. Jesus tells this weird little story, the Parable of the Talents, as it is traditionally known. It's about a master and three slaves, each of whom is given a different amount of their master's property in trust. Five talents for one, two talents for another, and one measly talent to the last recalcitrant slave. And you might be forgiven for suspecting that Trinity's finance and budget committees had chosen this parable all about the, the power of compound interest and the importance of prudent financial management as a cornerstone of this year's annual giving campaign. One way of reading this parable, the, the good capitalist reading, you might say, is a strong encouragement to invest your financial resources in the places where they will do the most good, May be coupled with a strong caution that if you fail to invest your resources wisely, read the church, you may well end up in the place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not saying that's going to happen to you if you don't make your pledge this year, but do you really want to take that chance? <laughs> Obviously, this parable is about a lot more than just. Jesus's financial advice. He was not a venture capitalist. Our budget and finance committee do not actually decide what scripture gets read when. We're on a lectionary cycle with hundreds of thousands of churches all over the world. I don't decide what you hear when you hear it. That's the principle that ensures that preachers actually have to talk about everything the Bible says, not just the stuff we like. Uh, So stuff like this very parable we get to deal with every, every once in a while. And it's worth saying, we, we at Trinity do hope that you will choose to invest some of your financial resource, some of your time, some of your energy and your capacity here at Trinity because we actually, we actually do believe that we represent a pretty good return on that investment. Lives are changed through the, the preaching and the teaching, the beautiful music, the ministries, the work that we do together in this place, both in person here in the building when we can and these days increasingly, online, thanks to the generosity of so many pr- faithful parishioners who have helped us to expand everything that we're doing so that we can do it in all sorts of new and different different ways. We think that this is a place that offers a pretty good return on your investment. And so we do hope that you'll hear this parable of Jesus and decide to make a pledge of financial support because we can't do what we do without that generosity. You can actually do it right now as you're listening to me preach by going to www.trinity-episcopal.org backslash pledge. It's a super easy way to invest your talents end of commercial thank you very much because it turns out that this parable is a lot more complicated actually a lot more uncomfortable than my slapdash annual giving campaign commercial would indicate jesus seems to say some pretty weird things about the kingdom of god the kingdom of heaven that's the it that you heard identified in that first first sentence if it is as if a man is going on a journey jesus begins that it is God's kingdom, God's family, God's way of being in the world. If this is, this is how God works, Jesus says. So if this is a story about how God works, it raises some pretty uncomfortable questions. What does it mean if the way God works is actually characterized by the moral that the gospel writer tags on to the end of this story? For those who have much, more will be given to them, but for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The poor get poorer and the rich get richer and that's supposed to be the way of the kingdom of God? That sounds a lot like the kingdom of America. I thought God's economy was supposed to work a little differently. If Jesus really is characterizing God as a a harsh and vindictive master who in the words of the punished slave reaps where he does not sow and gathers where he does not scatter, what are we to think of this God? Is God a, is God a thief? A, a corrupt businessman who fleeces other people in order to line his own pockets? There does not seem to be a lot of mercy and grace in this story. I mean, to say nothing of fairness. And really, actually, all of our readings this morning are kind of of the same key. From Zephaniah on down, what you heard this morning was a pretty unmitigated procession of doom and gloom and blood poured out like dust and flesh like dung, sudden destruction coming upon the world like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. As the psalmist says, we consume away at God's displeasure. We are afraid because of God's wrathful indignation, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's true, right? There is somebody who is afraid of God's wrathful indignation in this parable that Jesus tells, it's that third slave. The thing he is most afraid of is actually the very thing he ends up experiencing. So there's no consensus among interpreters about what this parable really means. There never, there never has been, actually. It's always been a story that has caused people to scratch their heads and wonder and argue. A lot of attention was paid in the, the first several centuries of Christianity to the idea of these, these talents that the master gives to the slaves. At a, at a literal level, right, a talent is just an ancient measure of weight. It's kinda of hard to translate into contemporary currency, but the, the general scholarly consensus is, is that talent, or talenta in Greek, is a pretty significant amount of money, right? It might be as much as a year's worth of wages for these servants to whom the master is entrusting his property. So a talent is a, is a big, chunk of, big chunk of change. These days, we hear the word talent and we think not so much about money but about gifts and abilities, right? And actually that definition of the word talent, that more contemporary definition of the English word, comes from the interpretation of this very parable. This is actually where that idea comes from. It was Christians in the Middle Ages who were reading Jesus' story about economic distribution and said, well, maybe it's not really about money, maybe it's about something more spiritual. Maybe Talenta could be understood not as a denomination of ancient currency, but in the metaphorical sense, right? Spiritual gifts, not material ones. So these monks, scribing away in their monasteries, began to creatively play with the idea of a master who gives us gifts and abilities. And that's where our contemporary understanding of the word talent comes from. The things that distinguish you from other people, the stuff that you're naturally good at, that you don't have to work hard at, that's uh, that's how we understand talent. It was actually a, a very early Christian interpreter, a guy named Origen, who wrote and taught in the late second century. And he thought that the talents referred to different ways that people understand the Bible itself, right? So Origen said one talent refers to people who can only grasp the literal level of what the text says. It's, it's the flesh meaning, he said, and, and those readers tend to bury that simplistic surface literal reading into the ground of their heart, and they remain caught, Origen said, in this kind of dull didactic lifeless life, what Origen would have called a place of outer darkness, because when you only know how to read the Bible at a surface level, it's actually a pretty nasty place to hang out a lot of the time. It makes for some pretty grim circumstances. Origen says the slave with, with two talents is like somebody who has invested in studying and working with the text and has resulted in a a kind of enhanced return. So he's able to penetrate beyond the literal level to the soul of the text, right? Not just what it says, but what it means. And then the guy with five talents represents this whole different way of engaging sacred text, right? This refers to people who are like flying high on hidden and esoteric interpretations that are available only to the elite few. And there was a reason that Origen got in trouble for Gnosticism. That's a, that's a topic for another day. But suffice to say that this question of what these talents represent lies at the heart of all of the different competitive and in in confusing interpretations of this very contradictory and confusing story. What we think this parable really means, I think tells us a lot about who we believe God really is. And I actually think that's what this parable is about. Who do you believe God is? And when I say believe, I don't mean so much like, who do you think God is, right? What have you read? What conclusions have you come to? I mean, who do, you, who do you trust that God is? Is God really about love and mercy, as so much of the Bible insists God is? Or is God really a God of judgment and fear who wrecks havoc and destruction on the ones who piss God off? Much of scripture would seem to depict that kind of God. That's the kind of God we've got on offer in our texts this morning. And you get to decide. Right? I think that's one way to understand this, this weird story Jesus tells. You get to decide what you do with the with the evidence, with the stories, the ideas, the images and concepts that we you know that we get from the Bible, from Sunday school, from hymns that we sang as kids, from stuff that we overhear, we see on Facebook or Twitter, from all the, the various places in our world that contribute to shaping our sense of who God really is, what God is really like? Is God really all about love? Or is God really all about judgment? You get to decide. And more importantly, how, how you decide that question Jesus suggests in the parable, how you kind of push into or, or live into that question, that will largely determine the God you find or the kind of kingdom that you find. If you put your trust and your talents in service to a harsh master of fear and judgment as that third slave does, a God who is ultimately not to be trusted but to be appeased, that is the kind of God you will experience. That's the kind of judgment that you will end up bringing upon yourself and upon the people around you because that's the kind of kingdom you end up building, right? A kingdom organized around the principle of fear, ends up building its gods in the image of that very fear. That seems to be how the master of the parable is responding when his third slave says, you know, I knew you were a harsh man that you reaped where you did not sow and gather where you do not scatter. And the master never endorses that third slave's view of him. He doesn't say you're right, but he does behave towards that slave in precisely the way that slave expects him to. He becomes a master of judgment and fear, for the one who is most afraid of him. The master that the slave expects to find is the one he experiences. Not because the master is really that way. It's because the slave is that way. The God he puts his trust in, the master in whose name he buries his talents. That's the master he experiences. But not so for the other two slaves. I mean, I suspect that they also wonder sometimes, right? Maybe this master of ours is a, I mean, he's certainly a little confusing. He's inconsistent, he's unpredictable. From the outside, that unpredictability can look a little scary. But these other two slaves know something else about the one they are serving, which is that he is one who can be trusted, one who is true to his word. Their master is worthy of respect, maybe even worthy of love, and so they, they make this really interesting calculation. They run a risk. They trust the gifts they have been given, even though the outcome of investing those gifts is far from certain. In that sense, this parable becomes not a story about a harsh master who punishes. It becomes a parable about the risk of, of trust, about the risk of, of love, and the, the courage, maybe the, maybe the foolishness, to step outside of a very literal and fear-based world and into this open, creative, multifaceted world of possibilities and ideas, and let's admit, quite a, little, quite a little bit of danger. Those two run the risk of losing everything they've got. Right? The safe response is to bury your stuff in the ground and guard it jealously for the angry master who is bound to return and demand an accounting from you. That's not actually what the master wants. This master wants the slaves to risk that they will lose everything in order to gain something that is worth a lot more than safety. The master wants them to spend their lives recklessly, to live their lives fearlessly, to love one another imprudently and lavishly, not just because that's more fun, although let's be clear, that is more fun The master wants the slaves to live into that lavish, open, imprudent way of being because the master is that way. And it turns out, for those of us who choose to run the risk of trusting, investing, if you like, investing ourselves in a God of compassion, a God of compassion is the God we will discover. For those who risk trust... Trust will be given. To those who invest love, love comes in return. Because beyond the harsh surface reading of a judgmental master who plays fast and loose with terrified slaves, there's this riskier but far more rewarding master, one who is not actually like a master among slaves at all. Because this one, who is embodied in the person of Jesus, the one who tells the story, this one is much more like A lover or a a companion, a friend, a guide who entrusts every one of his followers with something immeasurably precious. It's a life, right? It's a life that is rich and vibrant and full of meaning and purpose and then leaves it up to each one of us how we're going to choose to spend it.